You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good to be with you. Thanks so much for everyone who helped out at the, uh, the dance. Um, such a special event. Good to be back with you. Good to continue our series in 1 Corinthians. Let's ask God for his help as we go to his word today. So we do ask that, Father, that you would make us attentive and receptive to what you have to teach us. We praise you for the reminder this morning in communion that you have made us one body in Christ. Pray that we'd see the purpose of your redemptive work more clearly, Jesus. Pray it would cause us to love each other more dearly. For your sake, Jesus, your glory, amen. So remember March of 2020 when we started to uh, shelter in place? You remember that term? Um, maybe you don't want to remember it. I don't really want to. That was over three years ago. Can you believe that? And, and that was a crazy time. It was one of the most disorienting times in my life because, believe it or not, I'm not an epidemiologist. I didn't know anything about infectious diseases. I still know nothing about them. But I had to make all of these big consequential decisions for you. And so it's like, okay, let me put my science man hat on and figure out what Creekside should do. And it was so disorienting because that week I'm reading an article over here that's contradicted by an article over here. And thankfully we've got that all sorted out and everybody agrees on COVID now. Uh, But uh, I was wrestling with this question, wrestling with a question that I thought I would never have to ask. Does gathering do more harm than good? And I didn't know the answer. It wasn't clear to me. I was very confused. And and so I I tried to make things simple for myself. I said, okay, the experts say that COVID has like a 3% lethality rate. That's what we know. So three out of 100 people who get it are going to die. Okay, 500 people are going to show up on a Sunday. Let's just assume everyone gets it. That means I'm going to kill 15 people this Sunday. That's how I was thinking, right? You laugh now, but that's what I was thinking. Okay, if I'm going to kill 15, I'm going to hospitalize like 40, and we're all going to get it. And I was like, okay, if that's the calculus, like, okay, I can say no. And then, you know, we'll wait for two weeks, and then we'll all be back for Easter, right? And, um, you know, I'm really glad God doesn't let us know the future. He just lets us live in the, the present. But all that to say, it was disorienting because it was agonizing. It was agonizing because the church by its very nature, is a gathered reality. It just is. It's what the church is. We come together in big groups. We come together in small groups. The church comes together. The church ceases to be the church when the church isn't together, which means you need a very compelling reason not to gather. In fact, the danger has to be extreme not to gather. Now, in light of all that, consider the way Paul opens this passage. But in the following instructions, Corinthians, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. At the beginning of chapter 11, you'll remember Paul commends the Corinthians. He says, I commend you because you actually do desire to follow my teaching. We've seen this. The Corinthians are a mess 
but they're a sincere mess. They, they have a desire to follow Paul's teaching, particularly around gathered worship. They want to get together. They want to worship Jesus. They're zealous to do it. The desire isn't wrong, but the, the way the Corinthians are worshiping, well, there's a lot of problems. So chapters 11 through 14, Paul's going to address these problems. And in general, Paul's tone in this section is gentle. It's restrained, except for this passage. He starts by commending them, and now he says, but for this thing we're about to talk about, I don't commend you at all. In fact, he says, what you're doing in your gathered worship, some of what you're doing, it's so bad, it would be better if you didn't even get together. That's how bad it is. So what were the Corinthians doing? They were carrying a spirit of division into their gatherings. And according to Paul, that spirit of division is so deadly, it's so poisonous to community that it'd be better for Corinthians, for Christians not to gather than to gather in that way. Why is division deadly? To answer that question, we need God's perspective on division and on unity in the body of Christ. And that's what Paul gives us in today's text. Two things. Why does God take division so seriously? And then in light of that, how do we take division in the body more seriously? That's where we're going. Division, friction, factions, relational separation. Why does God hate that? Why does he take it so seriously? According to Paul, God takes it very seriously. Why? Because I don't know about you, I don't like division. I don't like factions. I don't like conflict. But if I'm honest, do you know why I hate it? Because it's annoying. In fact, it's exhausting. It's messy. It's complicated. I don't need any more drama in my life, right? No more drama. I've, I've got enough. I don't need it in the church, okay? And I will do just about anything to avoid drama in the church, okay? Um, now, I, th I would imagine that is most of you. Most of you do not wake up thinking, you know, wait a minute. There's no conflict in my life today. How do I fix that, right? There are people like that who just live for drama. That is not most of you. Here, here's the challenge for us. What happens when we do feel estranged from other Christians? What happens when we do feel at odds, when we do feel like there are, are factions? Because believe me, it will happen. And when that happens, the easiest thing to do is just to check out. To just say, I'm tired. I don't need this. I'm done. We need a bigger picture on unity and division to actually press through that and keep fighting for unity. Or we'll just give up and we'll, we'll say there's got to be a better group of sinners somewhere else to hang out with than this group of sinners who are going to be less divisive, right? And so we need God's perspective on division so that we have a compelling reason to seek unity. Does that make sense? That's where we're going. That's what Paul gives us. He shows us the problem with division, and then he shows us the real problem with division and why it's so serious. Here's what he says. For in the first place, Corinthians, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. We've seen that for Paul, the, the biggest concern he has for this church is division. 
That was chapters one through four, right? The, the Corinthians were dividing into little fan clubs around their favorite celebrity pastor, and they were creating these little tribes in the church, and it was creating all of this division. But, but the problem is even deeper than that. The Corinthians aren't just divided when they're apart. They're actually divided when they come together. In fact, we'll see they're even divided when they celebrate communion. Now, Paul has heard reports of this, and his response is interesting. He says, well, I believe it in part. In other words, I'm convinced there's got to be some divisions among you. Somebody's got to be causing division. Now, why is Paul convinced of that? This is interesting. Paul says that in one sense, division in the church is inevitable. It's sad, but it's inevitable. Why? Because on this side of eternity, the visible church, God's visible people, are made up of genuine believers in Jesus and ingenuine believers in Jesus. People who look like Christians, who walk like Christians, and talk like Christians, but they're actually not Christians. Now, according to Paul, how do those two groups show themselves to be what they are? It's through division. In other words, what Paul is saying is this, that if I have a heart truly transformed by the gospel, I will not continually sow division among my brothers and sisters in Christ. I will repent. I will seek unity. Conversely, if I am the kind of person who just loves controversy and conflict and division, it doesn't matter how good my theology sounds. It's a sign that I, I might not be a Christian to begin with if I'm destroying the body of Christ through my behavior. Does that make sense? That's where Paul is going. He'll return to that. But, but what did it look like for the Corinthians? How exactly were they being divisive? Well, the problem wasn't how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, and they were doing it in a way that was humiliating people in the church. Here's what Paul says. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The early church celebrated the Lord's Supper, communion, as a full meal. It was a meal the church had together. And meals are a big deal in the ancient world. And in Roman culture, meals were a sign of status. You ate with people who made you look good. You made them look good. It was a way of climbing the social ladder to eat a meal with other people. And that made the Lord's meal revolutionary. Why? Because now you have this church that's made up of all different ethnicities of rich and poor. And they're all coming around the same table celebrating the same Lord, eating the same meal as equals in Christ. That's socially revolutionary what's happening there. That's grace. We all come to the table on the same terms, right? On our knees, desperate for the grace of God. But some of the Corinthians had forgotten about this, and their own sort of Corinthian idea about meals had crept into how they were celebrating communion. Uh, in the early church, they met in homes. Who provided the meal? Probably the host. The host was generally a wealthy person. And, and so this wealthy patron of the church is putting on the meal. And here's the thing about these wealthy homes. There would have been a dining room and like eight to 10 people could eat there. And then there would have been an atrium adjacent to the dining room and maybe like 50 people could eat in there. 
And, and so here's what was happening. The host would kind of put on their own Lord's Supper. This is my best guess, okay? And as they're putting on their own Lord's Supper, the, the high status people in the church would kind of gather around. They'd eat their own meal. They'd enjoy the communion wine a little too much, apparently. I mean, they're just feasting. And then here's what happened. The have-nots, those of lower social class, they're not getting off work early. They're working. And those people, they actually need that meal. They're relying on that meal. It's not just a spiritual nourishment. It's actually physical nourishment for them. And so you have these high-status, status-obsessed Corinthians. We've seen that already. And they're using the Lord's meal as a time to just feast and gratify themselves. And then you have these have-nots being excluded. They're going hungry because they're not showing up for the meal. They're getting pushed out of it. But what makes matters worse is they're humiliated. Why are they humiliated? Because their lower class is just being reinforced by the meal itself. That, that's what seems to be happening here. Andrew Wilson says that they had turned this meal that was to memorialize the ultimate act of self-giving and they had taken it and made it the ultimate act of self-gratifying. That's what this is. Now that's bad, right? You wouldn't want to go to that church. I mean, we have brunch on Sundays, right? Imagine if that was communion and after the service, like we couldn't quite celebrate until I got to my seat of honor. <laughs> Right? Just a table set up there, and now we're going to celebrate communion. And we get this amazing brunch, right? Like six different kinds of bacon and frittatas. And you go, wow, Jeff's really enjoying the mimosas, right? He's had like eight of them. Wow. And, and we're just dining. And then the rest of you, you know, you, you have to wait till we're done. And then you can have your little piddly communion, right? You're like, you don't, that, this church might not be a fit, right? That's, that's what you'd be thinking. I don't know if this is a fit, right? That's the social problem. That's not Paul's major concern. The social problem is a symptom of a spiritual problem, which is that the Corinthians do not understand communion at all, which means they don't understand what Jesus accomplished at a deeper level. Remember what he said? When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Paul doesn't just say you're abusing the Lord's Supper. He says you're not even celebrating it the way you're celebrating it. You've completely missed the point. So what is communion? What does it signify? Well, Paul starts by reminding the Corinthians of what the Lord's Supper is. And he reminds them how Jesus, the Lord of the Supper, instituted this meal. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Now, back in verse 2 of chapter 11, Paul said that he had received traditions about Jesus. This is how the, the teaching of Jesus was passed on in the early church from one generation to the next, just by word of mouth. And it was passed on so faithfully that Paul can say here that he received this tradition as if from the Lord himself. It had been passed on to him so faithfully through this line of transmission. And now Paul quotes directly from Jesus. Now, this sounds a little bit like Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, a little bit like Matthew's. But, but here's the point. This is how, Paul says, Jesus tells you to celebrate communion. Now, we don't have time to talk about everything entailed and what communion is and what are we doing and how is Jesus involved. I talked about it a few weeks ago, okay? 
So, Jeff, I want more information. Go back to the sermon on chapter 10, verses 14 through 22, and I talked a lot about what communion is there, okay? But, but here's Paul's point in bringing this up. When Jesus institutes communion, it is not only a time where we remember what he did for us. It's a time where symbolically we reenact what Jesus did for us. Just the act of taking communion demonstrates what Jesus did in dying for us. See, that's the practice of communion. Here's the point of communion. Here's what Paul says. Here's his interpretation of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Family, every time we just do that, we're preaching the gospel. How? How does that work? Well, Jesus, his body was shattered on the cross to make us what? One body. His blood was spilled. Why? To bring us into his covenant together to be his new covenant people. Jesus' death created what? The church. One body together feasting at the table with Jesus, his benefits for our good as one body. In the West, we're so fixated on this idea that the gospel is a me and Jesus thing, right? Because we're individualistic. That sometimes we forget that the gospel is also even more so a we and Jesus thing. It's about him saving us together. That's what we declare when we are at the table. And it's a foretaste of what is to come, that there is a wedding feast coming where the bride and the groom will be together and we will all sup with Jesus at that table. We're doing that in anticipation. We're proclaiming what he has proclaimed, which means the way we take communion is a really serious thing, isn't it? We're declaring the gospel. Here's the problem. If you take it in a spirit of disunity, you're proclaiming a false gospel. That's the problem. That's why Paul goes on to say, whoever therefore, go back, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That sounds serious, doesn't it? What is Paul saying? Remember the context. He's saying that if you continue treating this like this feast and being exclusionary as you're at the table of the Lord... You aren't just humiliating these have-nots. You're actually dishonoring Christ. Because in a sense, you're saying your death and resurrection didn't actually accomplish what you said it accomplished, which is one unified body gathered around one table. Does that make sense? So the way they are celebrating it is misrepresenting the very nature of what Christ has done. It's diminishing it. It's preaching a false gospel. It is an enacted way of denying what Christ died to accomplish. That's a big deal. To be guilty of eating it that way. How seriously does God take this? Well, Paul takes, tells us in verse 30. You ready for this? And this is why, Corinthians, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. How much does God care about unity and harmony among his people? That when they persist 
in disunity. He will afflict them with illness. And even, remember, these are believers he's talking to, death. This isn't the first time. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Acts 5, they give this big public offering to the poor in the church. Look how generous we are to the poor. Everybody applauds them and they're lying about how much they give. And Peter says, well, today's your life is required of you. Boom, they die. As an example, and Acts 5 says that the rest were left in fear and people were reticent to join the church. Wouldn't you be? God does not trifle with disunity in his church, not primarily because disunity hurts people. That's true. It does. It's awful. But because persistent division dishonors the gospel and misrepresents it completely. That's a big deal. That's why it's a sacred thing. This is the implication that a divided body is a denial of what the gospel creates and therefore a denial of the gospel itself. Now this comes into focus at communion, right? Because that's the thing that's supposed to embody our unity. But the principle is true more generally that a body that lives in perpetual division, factiousness, biting, devouring with each other, you're not just devouring each other, you're dishonoring Jesus because he didn't die to create that kind of body. He died to put us into reconciled relationships with each other that maintain unity in the bond of peace. And ultimately, it's an attack on him when we refuse to live that way. Raises the stakes, doesn't it? Raises the stakes and the beef you have with that other person, that thing you can't let go, that resentment you nurse, those judgments you make. It raises the stakes because it's about your relationship with Jesus. So, how do we escape division? How do we get free of this? How do we take division more seriously? Here's what Paul says. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, there's a way of interpreting this that completely misses the point. Completely. And here's what it is. And, and, and in the history of the church, thousands of pages have been written on this, and I think a lot of them are missing the point, okay? There's my hot take, but here it is. If you think that Paul's point here is that as we're taking communion, I'm supposed to have this me and Jesus moment and think really hard about what the elements represent. Now, that could be true in principle, but if that's what Paul is talking about, why would he say that in a context that's all about what? How we treat each other during communion. Does that make sense? When he talks about discerning the body, examining yourself and discerning the body, what's he talking about? He's not just talking about discerning the body of Christ represented in the bread. He's talking about the body of Christ that's all around you as you take communion. Being mindful of the people around you that we're eating this together as one unified body. And if you don't do that, Paul says, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. Remember what he said in chapter 10. He said, the bread that we break, it is, is it not a participation in the what? Body of Christ. And then he explains it. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. 
So here's what Paul is saying. As we're taking communion, we should reflect on the fact that Christ's body has made us one body and as one unified body, we take it. That's what it means to discern the body. Does that make sense? And if we fail to see that implication of communion and then live in disunion, we're eating and drinking to our own judgment. So I said what I said before communion. If you're living in perpetual disharmony with other people and then take communion, that's a scary place to be. Because you're denying through your actions what the thing is supposed to symbolize. Self-examination is needed. So how do we take division more seriously in our own lives? How do I take division more seriously? Three questions and then we're done. Here's the first question, and it starts with how I view myself. Do I judge myself in light of the gospel? What does Paul say? Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would what? Not be judged. What's Paul talking about here? You know what the Corinthians are doing as they come to the table? They are just thinking about themselves and their own status. I want a high status in the church. I want to look good in the church. That must mean what? I'm a pretty important person. <laughs> and maybe these other people in the church, maybe they're not as important a person. Maybe it doesn't really matter if they take communion or not. Whatever. Who cares? Paul says, judge yourself truly. Communion should be a time where you judge yourself truly. Do you know what that means? Here's what communion says about me. I am way more screwed up than I would dare to believe. And in Jesus, I'm just way more loved and accepted than I could dare to hope. Communion is the great leveler. Do you know why? Because it shows that I need Jesus desperately. And do you know who doesn't need Jesus more than me? the person next to me during communion. <laughs> See, judging myself truly, this is how I flee from division by saying this, I don't need the gospel less than the person I think needs the gospel the most. I don't need the gospel less than the person I think needs it the most. We all take it together. We're all beggars at the cross. Pointing here is where you find bread. That's the leveler. So who do you think needs the gospel most in your life? Right? Yeah, yeah me. Right. Good. Good answer. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> right? We talk about y'all need Jesus, right? No, I need Jesus. <laughs> I need Jesus. And, and that's the great leveler because um, I don't know about you, but there is a lawyer in my head who loves making judgments against people all day long. All day long. I'm not saying you have that, but I have that because Jesus says, out of the heart come what? Evil thoughts, evil judgments. All the time when I listen to myself talk, I'll be listening to talk radio and I'll be like, that guy's an idiot. That guy's sharing. I'll say it out loud. I'm like, why am I making this judgment, right? You're just driving. Like, that guy doesn't know how to drive. Like, that guy's overweight. Look at him. Look at what she's wearing. That's fine. Like, just all day long, judgments pouring out of you. Pouring out. That, and, and here's the thing. It's so natural. It feels so normal. Do we even catch ourselves? I don't catch myself. I have to stop and pause. Sometimes something will just slip out. I'll be like, oh my gosh. That's why we start by judging ourselves truly. That's what we do at communion is saying, I am in desperate need of Jesus. And you know, if anyone could see my heart for five minutes, <laughs> I think they'd be terrified by what they saw. 
I, won't, I don't want to put my best 15 minutes up there for you to see, okay, in my life. Would you? Imagine there was just a, you know, I could just live stream, you know, maybe AI will do this at some point. Like just live stream my heart and the thoughts and intentions of my heart onto the screen. Would you let anyone see it here for five minutes? No, I wouldn't. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. The person who most needs Jesus in my life is me. I start with that and I judge myself and say, I'm not going to look with an air of superiority because if I feel superior to other people, I'm not going to live in unity with them. I'm not. I'm going to think they need Jesus more than I do. Does that make sense? Okay, that's number one. Number two, am I sensitive to the Lord's discipline in my life? Sometimes we don't judge ourselves. We don't repent of our own pride. And then what does Jesus do? He humbles us for us. You can humble yourself or I will humble you. What does Paul say? But when we are judged, this is the Lord judging believers, we are what? Disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Remember, genuine Christians will not persist in sowing division. You know why? Because the Lord will discipline them. He'll discipline you. He will stop you from doing that, but it's a redemptive purpose. He's not punishing you. He's delivering you. He will put affliction and hardship in your life to teach you. He'll even kill Christians so that their spirit will be saved on the last day so that we're not condemned along with the world. See, you see, God, discipline is a means God uses to keep us in the faith. And so the question I have to ask is, when I am in division with other people, am I sensitive to what the Lord is doing in my life? Do I, can I detect when God is disciplining me? Do you ever think about hardship in your life in that way? Maybe the Lord is doing something to get my attention. Right? Like, if you are in perpetual conflict with people around you, there's a common denominator. I'm not going to say who it is, but I'm just saying there's a common denominator there. And you have to ask yourself, Lord, is it something in me? Am I blind to something here that maybe I just can't see the ways I'm sowing friction and division through my words, my actions, all these things? What do you have to teach me? Paul says here that a reason you can be sick or ill is because you're sowing division among other people. Have you ever thought that way in your entire life? Now, I want to be very sensitive not all sickness is a discipline for sin, okay? You can be sick, and it isn't the Lord teaching you anything. You're just sick. He'll train you through it, but there's no direct one-to-one -one correlation between you sin in this way, you have a sickness because of this. But frankly, you know, I haven't met many Christians who think at all that maybe the Lord is disciplining me, and maybe that's why I don't feel good physically, Ask yourself if you feel sick. Is there something? What, is, what does James say? Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And he's talking in the context of physical healing there. If there's a physical ailment, it could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be a spiritual issue. You know, I, I've met hypochondriacs. Maybe you're a hypochondriac. I'm a hypochondriac. Um, I worry all the time something's really wrong with my body. Um, I'm a lazy hypochondriac. I don't go to the doctor about it. I just go on WebMD and try to diagnose myself. Uh, but, 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 but I have hypochondria C. Um, I haven't met many spiritual hypochondriacs. 
who worry, huh, maybe there's something physically wrong with me because of a spiritual issue. I haven't met that person. I think in the West, that's probably where we lean is toward blindness between the physical and the spiritual and how they interact. So that could be a way God's getting your attention. Is there something I need to repent of in my life and the, the physical difficulty is a way of getting my attention? Are, are we sensitive to how the Lord might be teaching us? Finally, the third question to ask is the most basic. Do you know how to seek unity in the church? It's pretty simple. You just put other people's interests above your own. You put other people's interests above your own. It's pretty simple what the Corinthians were supposed to do here. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, what do you do? Just wait. Wait for another. You're hungry, rich people. You have food. Eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. We have no idea what the other things are. Don't you love Paul? He's just like, I got a lot of issues. Let's just, let's hold off. Okay. I'll deal with some stuff later, right? When dad comes. What's Paul saying here? Just live in such a way that you're mindful of other believers and the needs they have, the interests they have. Seek them above your own. Have you ever been the guest of honor somewhere? Um, I've only been it a few times. Like when I'm the guest speaker, it's an amazing thing. It's kind of weird, right? Because people want to give you the best seat and they do all these nice things for you and they're so polite. And you know, every person who comes in on a Sunday morning, we should see as the guest of honor. Every person in our small group should be the guest of honor. We think this is a person that I am here to honor. Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. Make it a competition. Let's out-honor each other, right? Just make it awkward. After you, no, after you. No, I insist, after you, right? We never do anything. Just, we're just deferring to each other all the time. We, we seek others' interests. And I will say this, a sign of spiritual maturity for a believer is this. I pursue Christian community not primarily for what I can get out of it and what I need, but because I need to be there to minister to other people. It's great to, 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 to be needy for Jesus and to be ministered to by his body. But at some point you say, you know what? It's not just about me getting my needs met. Actually, the really important reason that I get involved in a community group and that I keep coming faithfully and that I serve and that I show up to church, it's not so much for everything I'm going to get out of it, but because I'm trusting God to work through me and other people need that ministry. That's why I'm going to show up. And that's a sign that you're becoming spiritually mature, that you're viewing your commitments differently. It's not about me, ultimately. It's about what other people need and their interests, and I want to see the Lord work through me. It means I'm going to attend to people first. It means I'm going to listen to people first. I'm going to think about serving first. If I hurt you, I'm going to apologize first. Reconcile first and not seek to be first in everything. That's what it looks like. Um, this is really hard. This is really hard to do. Isn't it interesting that in Paul's letters, I mean, Romans, what's it about? Like, at some level, live in unity. Galatians, what's it about? Like, work it out, Jews and Gentiles at the table. Live in unity. Ephesians, what's it about? Live in unity. Uh, Philippians, what's it about? Looks aligned, one, one mind together, striving for the gospel of peace. Philemon, it's just a literal one guy. What's it about? Unity. 
with the other guy that you're supposed to be living in unity with. I mean, this is a concern Paul goes back to again and again. Do you know why? Because disunity is the normal state of humanity. We will tend toward division either through malice or benign neglect of community. So we need a deeper motivation to keep pursuing each other and only Jesus can give you that. Do you know why you love the people of God? It is not because they're lovable. It's because Jesus loves them. Jesus loves them. The, the person that you love least in the body of Christ is the, is the brother or sister for whom Christ died. And, and what did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Feed them, serve them. Not because you love them, but because you love me, Jesus says. Look, no one has been hurt by the church more than Jesus. He died for their sins. No one loves the church more than Jesus. He died for their sins. And because he loves me, I love you the way he loves me. It's really as simple as that. That's the motivation. And, and I just do not want to bring disrepute on the name of Jesus by harboring anything in my heart against you. All right, let's pray. So, Thank you for the promise, Jesus, that you have done the work we can't. We can't create unity among ourselves. We can't do this, Jesus. And, and yet the promise of the gospel is that you have already made us one in you. That, that in you, we are already family. We're already one body. We're not called to create this. We already have it in you. We're called to maintain it. I pray we would. And I pray that Jesus, any friction, division, resentment, here, uh, Lord, would you just eradicate it and bring harmony, restoration, mutual service, and love and affection, Jesus, uh, because that's how you love us. Thank you. Pray it in your name. Amen.